You're listening to the official podcast of Asbury University, produced by students with God-honoring conversations that inform, edify, and encourage. This is Asbury. We explore culture and current topics through a Christian worldview, promoting a well-balanced life, and we empower our community to belong, become, and be set apart. I'm your host, Abby Lobb. Welcome to This is Asbury. Greetings. I am Reverend Dr. Esther Jadhav, and I serve at Asbury University as the Associate Vice President for Intercultural Affairs and Spiritual Development. It's my honor today to be with Dr. John Inazu in our studio. Dr. Inazu has been our Embrace Conference speaker, and for those of you who may have tuned in to chapel, you got to hear Dr. Inazu's message. And if you haven't done so, I would encourage you to tune in to chapel and check out the message uh, that Dr. Inazu presented uh, to our community this morning. Welcome, John. Esther, thanks so much. It's great to be here. It's been a great few days. It has been a gift. For those of you listening for the first time and wondering what is Embrace Conference, the Embrace Conference focuses on engaging racial reconciliation through a Wesleyan theological understanding, which is the theological house in which our university is founded. Each year, we discuss how we can participate in creating communities of hospitality, mutuality, redemptive social action, and grace-filled reconciliation. And this year, we have focused on mutuality. Dr. Inazu has helped us understand how we do this work together. What role do each play in the efforts towards racial reconciliation? Although we enter this work from different stories and lived experiences, how do we join together in mutuality in this effort? So that's a bit of a synopsis of the Embrace Conference. And I'm going to invite Dr. Inazu to share his thoughts on that question of how do we do the work of racial reconciliation in mutuality, given your recent work, the book Uncommon Ground that we have read here at the university, which is a collection of essays. So you all worked in mutuality. So could you share from that experience with us? Thanks for having me here, Esther. It's a privilege to be part of this conference, especially knowing that my friend and collaborator, Bishop Claude Alexander, preceded me here the last time. And in many ways, his life's message and work is very much on point with what I try to do in much of my work. This theme of mutuality, especially as it relates to racial reconciliation, I think begins with the recognition that who is in the room is going to help determine which questions get asked, even how we frame the approach to these issues. And so when we think of a book like Uncommon Ground, it was not by accident that we worked hard to find a diverse group of authors, racially diverse men and women, all who are committed to the gospel and committed to living differently, but also who represent different perspectives or different touch points as they pursue reconciliation and mutuality. And I think we have so many resources, right, in the gospel itself of how to do this well, that we recognize many different parts of the body, that we recognize our posture as Christians has to be one of an us rather than a me, that we act in communities of witness, and that that is the beginning of a move toward reconciliation. We can't reconcile with the world if we're not first reconciled with ourselves as a church, as Christian institutions, as Christian people. So how do we practice the work of forgiveness and patience 
and mutual trust with one another before we go out there and try to engage across really hard differences in the world, whether racial or otherwise. Thank you, John. That is so good. And you have caused me to think about your previous work, Confident Pluralism. And I want to bring both of Confident Pluralism and Uncommon Ground together and ask, so what does it take to become reconcilers for those of us that live within the framework of the Christian faith. I think to connect the two ideas, the best way to think of this is to connect civic aspirations with Christian virtues. And so in my first book, Confident Pluralism, I was really making an argument for all people, Christian or not, people who care about being part of this democratic experiment that is our country and how they can move forward toward difference for the purpose of reconciliation or mutuality with the civic postures of humility, patience, and tolerance. And just briefly on the three of those, by humility, I mean going into conversations and relationships, recognizing that even if you're convinced you're right, you're not always going to be able to prove to someone else why they're wrong because they might be coming to a question or a problem from a very different lived experience than your own. So just the humility to recognize that other people will see the world differently. That doesn't mean relativism. It doesn't mean all truths are the same. It just means there's a limit to what you can do in your persuasion or your arguments with others. The second posture is patience, which is the idea that we commit to relationships and follow-on conversations and asking good questions, sometimes a kind of forbearance that means we're not going to be easily offended. If we are stunned or hurt by someone's comments, we'll ask for clarification rather than just shut down. And then finally, tolerance, the idea that we can, generally speaking, separate people from the ideas that they hold. We can see people for who they are, even if we disagree with their ideas or think that they're wrong. And those are civic aspirations, which I think are attainable by people of all faiths and people of no faiths. But when it comes to our role as Christians in the world, we have these much deeper resources. We have Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. And that's what Tim and I talk about in Uncommon Ground with our co-authors. We try to suggest and model and tell stories about how being rooted in faith, hope, and love can make us people who are very confident in our own beliefs and aren't afraid to move toward mutuality with others. We're not worried that somehow someone who's different than us is going to corrupt us or confuse us. We're open to questions because ultimately, our confidence is not in ourselves or our own reasoning, but in the person of Jesus. And if we are convinced about this gospel narrative and what has already happened and what will happen in the fullness of time, then we of all people should be willing to engage across difference in faith, hope, and love, not to be walled off from other people, not to not to be defensive or angry, but to be invitational in our relationships and to know that uh, even with those around us aspiring towards civic virtues, we have far deeper Christian virtues to ground our engagement with others. John, I'm over here thinking there is so much to unpack in just what you've shared. But what I want to ask of you next is, will you help us understand the plurality or pluralism that we are experiencing in our United States? When I just look at the world in general, I think differences exist. But apparently there is a kind of plurality, perhaps, or the kind of pluralism that our United States is experiencing that seems to be dividing us in ways that don't appear to be helpful. So could you speak to that? Because it is a genuine struggle. The word 
word pluralism itself is sometimes hard to wrap your head around. Even though I used it in the title of one of my books, it's not a common word and people don't always know what it means. I think of it in two ways. The first is what you hinted at, which is just the fact of difference in our world. People have very different beliefs over lots of things that matter and those differences aren't going away. So there is no unified us in this country that is going to agree about hard questions like what does it mean to be a human being or what's the nature of human flourishing. We come from very different backgrounds about those fundamental issues. What happens when you die? How do you know if something's wrong? Those are cosmic questions that nobody is just going to pronounce unity on any time in our lifetimes. So given that fact of difference, what do we do about it? And this is the second way to understand pluralism. Pluralism as a theory of democratic practice that allows you to live with others who have significant differences. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take a lot of work. It's not always going to be fun. And going back to the founding of our country, when Madison and others talked about factions or these groups of differences, they knew they were going to be hard and bad things that we had to deal with. But the challenge of pluralism is to figure out how to work together and across differences. And in some ways, in our current moment, maybe the best way to, to respond to your question is to say, what are the alternatives? If we can't effectively work across differences, which will also mean compromises, which will mean political wins and losses, which will mean we're not always in control, which will mean we won't always be able to assume that others share our basic foundations and beliefs. If we can't do that, then it seems to me we're left with two other alternatives. One is to run for the hills, to withdraw and try to be our own enclave away from the world. And there have been times in history when some Christians have been called to do that. I think that's rarer than not. And I don't see Christians in the current moment being called to run away from the world. The other is to try to control, to win at all costs, to gain control through the political processes, to win at the ballots, to enact and enforce our own policies. And that's not really a kind of pluralism either. That's that's more of a fear-driven control. And a lot of Christians in this country have, have operated in that mode of control for a long time in part because they could establish control successfully. And as political winds shift and as sometimes that gets more complicated, the question becomes whether you double down on the control narrative or whether you push toward a kind of pluralism that works toward this messier, harder mutuality, but in the end of the day, a kind of mutual coexistence that is probably more respectful of other people. And I think quite ably allows the gospel to go forward into strange and unknown cultures. And we have lots of evidence from the biblical record and the history of Christianity that shows exactly that happening when Christians have been part of cultures that are very confused and very messy and very non-Christian. The witness of the people of God still remains. So, John, you use this word messy, and none of us like messy. So could you give us one compelling reason or invitation as to why we should want to desire or want to be a part of the messy? In the example of Jesus, we have the perfect Son of God entering into a lot of mess through his humanity. So that model alone suggests that architect of our own faith is, has modeled for us moving from not messy to messy and what that means. To be messy is to be human, I think, or to be human Mm -hmm. is to be messy, that when we encounter other human beings, 
They're not perfect images and statement issuing bots of artificial intelligence that never get anything wrong and never offend us. They're people who we work, live, and play with who hurt our feelings and Mm -hmm. can be selfish and can be tired and can say the wrong things. And that's the messiness of all of life, whether it's people who are different than us or our close friends and family. And I think the, the increasing temptation with all of our many online and other outlets is to live into an alternate reality that avoids the mess. We've always had these possibilities to some degree. People would say you could escape from reality Mm -hmm. into a good book or into a good movie. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that in a very limited sense. But when the book or a movie becomes your entire way of life, when you're engaging, say, purely online because you want to avoid the mess and the hurt and the suffering, that will form you over time into the kind of person who is unable to engage effectively or compassionately across differences with any human beings whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge is to practice being part of the mess of actual human relationships. And that means being exposed to hurt and selfishness and failure. And that's what Jesus did for us. John, that is excellent. And again, much of what you're saying, if not all of it, is causing me to think about how do we reach into the depth of our faith? Because it doesn't seem like we have really exegeted or brought to light some of these learnings that actually equip and empower folks of Christian faith to engage with the messy. Why is it that we have fallen short in our interpretations that don't allow us to really reach across the divides that we find ourselves in? Part of it has to be that for many American Christians, we have been part of a kind of majority culture for a lot of years. And when you're part of a majority culture, you don't have to work at understanding some of the confusion and incoherence and difference because you can assume your own baselines. You have a language and you have a set of norms that other people have to learn and other people have to work at understanding. And when you lose that baseline, when suddenly you're not in control, you're much more aware of the mess, but then you also have to work harder to translate through the mess and to message across that. And the good news here is we have lots of examples from scripture and from other parts of the world and different expressions of Christianity within the United States that have not been part of the majority culture who are able to help us along the way, who are guideposts to translating across the mess, who are have the kind of wisdom and tools to say, when you're not in control, when people aren't going to assume your baseline norms, here's the way that you can engage in that joyfully and faithfully and patiently as opposed to fearfully and anxiously. And and I think we've got plenty of examples to help us if we're willing to listen to them. John, in your work with Reverend Keller in Uncommon Ground, you elevate these three principles or these three virtues that I have heard over these last two days during the Embrace Conference. The posture or the virtue of humility, patience, and tolerance. You touched on this a bit at length in your chapel message, but for our listeners on the podcast, could you share just briefly what these virtues are and what they're not? We mentioned a little bit earlier sort of the content of them, what it means to be humble and patient and tolerant. And to say what they're not, you can almost just think about the opposite characteristics. What's the opposite of humility? Well, it's a kind of pride or a certainty of knowing everything. The opposite of patience being impatience. The opposite of tolerance is a kind of intolerance or indifference that says, I don't have to actually try to approach or understand you as a human being. And the thing about both of these, both the positive and the negative versions of these, is that you have to 
practice them over time to embody them. You can't read a book and become a patient person. You can't hear a lecture or a talk and become humble. So what does it mean in our daily lives to work hard at being humble rather than prideful, patient and not impatient, and tolerant rather than intolerant? And that means being with other people taking the time to learn from them and about them and about ourselves and to put these aspirations into practice. And over time, when you do that long enough with the group of people, especially in a common frame or endeavor, then those aspirations can develop into virtues. And we need people with deeply held virtues when times get hard because it's one thing to talk abstractly about being humble, patient, and tolerant or to exuding faith, hope, and love. But as we all know, when it comes to actual relationships or tense moments or policy disagreements or political elections, it's a lot harder to embody those. And if we haven't practiced them in ordinary moments, we're not going to do well in extraordinary or more complicated times. John, yesterday during one of our sessions, you elevated the significance of one of the rights that we have in our country, the right to assemble. Could you uh, share a little bit of that because I thought it was so significant as to what it can do and what it doesn't do when it's not utilized in the ways that it's intended. So could you speak to the significance of this right to assemble? In the First Amendment, the right of assembly is the one individual right that requires more than one person to be exercised. I can speak alone, I can petition alone, in some face I can practice religion alone, I can be the press by starting starting a blog online by myself, but I can't assemble alone. I need at least one other person. What that says to me is that from the founding of our country, the framers of the Constitution recognized how we exist in groups and how we form our identities and beliefs and our modes of political engagement through groups, and that necessarily those groups are going to be different from one another. They're also going to be different from the government. These are private groups, and it was important in the country's founding that the government didn't control the ways and practices of private groups, churches, religious organizations, but also clubs and political organizations, later in life labor unions and advocacy and protest movements, and and to recognize that these groups or these assemblies will necessarily cause some friction and instability and disruption, but that is an important way to embody a democracy and an important way to allow dissent to be practiced. And I'll, you know, one thing I'll say about that that first book that I wrote on assembly, I was able to publish it under a Creative Commons license, which makes Mm. it available available freely online for anyone. And one of the great gifts of my scholarship has been hearing from political dissidents in other countries who don't have a right of assembly. Mm. And they they found this book and they say, we're we're, just, just so you know, we're working on how to think through an assembly right here because we recognize how important it is to a a future country that allows civil liberties and allows more democratic practices. And so I think we see both in our own experience and also by contrast with others how fundamentally important it is to allow groups to exist, to gather, and to express their disagreement with each other and with the government. Thank you for being an encouragement for people around the world. So they are looking into your work and what you have proposed can be a modality of significance to encourage their own countries and regions. John, you've got a new book coming up. Would you be willing to share about that book as much as you can at this point, but especially from the lens of what inspired the title of the book and what would you want readers and listeners to take away? 
Sure, thanks. So this book called Learning to Disagree comes out in April of 2024. And the real impetus in the book was to think as to whether there were ways to equip readers who are nervous about the Thanksgiving dinner conversation mm. or who are going to go to the workplace around election season or in their neighborhoods and not know how to or not want to engage across these hard differences that are affecting so many of our lives. And my intuition in writing this book was that there were parts of my own life, some from my teaching law and also some from just navigating the experiences of life, whether it's going to traffic court or other kinds of extra classroom activities that, that I've engaged in where thinking and reflecting on relationships across difference or how people see things differently can open up ideas and suggestions and advice to others how to do this. And so a lot of this book, which takes place in the classroom setting, which is a story-based account of what it means to teach law to a diverse group of students who don't agree about all things, how by reading cases together, by encouraging respectful arguments, by getting to know other people, how we can become better at disagreement by prioritizing sort of old-fashioned skills like empathy and patience and compassion and forgiveness. And not that we're going to agree on any of this or win arguments, but that we can figure out how to have better arguments. And that sometimes means avoiding or stopping arguments at the right time. So there's a prudence in how to do this as well. But my hope is that especially as we enter what is going to be a very divisive and hard election season, that there will be people who can be persuaded of modes of engagement and ways to think differently about the other side, whatever it is, and especially to realize that that other side is probably not stupid. They see the world differently. They probably come to their beliefs over time in perhaps very sophisticated ways. And starting from that premise to ask, why are these disagreements here? Why are they so hard? And how can we work to understand each other better? John, thank you so much. Our time has almost come to an end. So once again, thank you so much for being with us. And listeners, I want to invite you to please look into the books that Dr. Inazu has published. I am confident that you will be encouraged and inspired. And so I want to thank you for tuning in and for listening to us. As we sign off, I want to invite Dr. Inazu to share what compels him to do the work that he does. Oh, that's a that's a bold question to end with, isn't it? I, I guess I, I guess I would say that I am encouraged and sustained by the reminder that we are all just bit players in a very long story that's unfolding over many thousands of years and that we know how that story ends. And if we can remind ourselves and each other of that long, big story that we're a small part of, then the pressure's off in some ways. We're mm-hmm. just called to faithfulness now and the little part that we have, but that the bigger story is in someone else's hands and under control. And that, I think, in times of where I'm tempted to anxiety or despair, it's the reminder of the larger story of Scripture that anchors what we are doing. Thank you, John. And thank you, listeners. I hope you all have a great day. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of This is Asbury. To learn more about Asbury University, visit asbury.edu. 